0: What's up, everybody? Welcome to episode 10 of the Trumpet Summit, season one finale. My name is John Raymond. I'm your host. And before we get going today with a bunch of questions that you guys have sent to me via social media and via email over the last few weeks, I just want to take a moment and say a huge thank you to all of you for checking this podcast out. You know, if you're anything like me, I'm sure you guys are super inspired by hearing from all these legendary musicians, and I hope you've been able to soak up all of the morsels of wisdom that these folks have shared with us. To me, this is one of the best ways that we learn and grow as trumpet players, as improvisers, as musicians, as artists, is hearing other people's perspective having a window into their process of how they think about the instrument, how they hear the music. And if you guys are anything like me, again, you've had moments listening to these conversations where you feel challenged and confronted and like, man, the mic has been dropped and I gotta adjust my way of thinking or my way of approaching things in a certain way. But I hope you've also had moments where you felt affirmed, like People have said something and it resonates with you and you kind of go, oh yeah, that's, that's how I'm doing it. I'm on the right path. You know, I feel like we should have both of these kinds of experiences when we listen to conversations like this. And these are what help orient us for the way forward, figuring out how we need to go about what we need to do to get to where we want to go. So again, thanks so much for checking this podcast out. I really appreciate you guys. And let's get into some Q&A, all right? Uh, I'm going to try to answer as much stuff as I can in the next hour or so. So we'll see what happens. Here we go. All right. Time for a shameless plug. There aren't any sponsors for this podcast. So if you want to support what I'm doing, one way that you can do that and actually get something out of it is by going to my website, john-raymond.com and picking up a PDF or a hard copy of my new book called The Jazz Trumpet Routine, which is a fundamentals book geared towards creative improvisers that is essentially designed to rethink how we go about practicing and approaching fundamentals from the perspective of a jazz trumpet player. Okay? It includes over 175 different exercises that are designed for players of all ages, all ability levels, as well as for those who have any amount of experience in jazz or improvisation. More importantly though, the book is going to help you develop an approach and a concept for how to do those exercises in a way that mirrors the improvisation process so that fundamentals and improvisation become one in the same. But the best part is that every single exercise comes with a call and response style play along recording that you can practice with so that you can hear an example of how it should sound and then imitate it yourself. And this is the whole idea behind the book, is to develop such a vivid concept of how you want something to sound, and then simply play what you hear, right? Trumpet playing is really meant to be that easy. So, check it out, john-raymond.com. I'd appreciate your support. All right, question one. Somebody asked, how do you stay true to yourself while improvising? Ooh, this is a really common occurrence, I think, amongst musicians. We're always trying to bridge the gap between what we hear and what we actually play. And in a perfect situation, we're always playing what we hear, right? And so, really, I think we have to ask the question first, like, why am I not playing what I want to play? Or why am I playing other things than what I want to play? And even just asking that question is really revealing, I think, because it it could very well reveal some sort of ego-centered stuff that tends to happen when we play, like we're trying to play to impress certain people, whether it be the audience or the musicians that we're playing with or our teachers or even ourselves, like play things that we think are so killing, right? Like that is all self centered right and this is a really important but hard thing to realize as an improviser the master musicians that we all look up to have a way of getting out of the way so to say so that they're not functioning based on their own selfish needs and wants and what they want to play but they're playing what the music needs the most right so one thing that you can do is as you're improvising always be asking yourself what does the music need right now not what do I want to play or what do I think this person will really love to hear me play but really ask the question what does the music need right and that question gets at this thing that is really important to what we do as improvisers which is everything that we play fits into a context. Everything that we've heard fits into a context, right? We often get so obsessed with the one line somebody's playing that we don't pay enough attention to what's happening around it, right? So I think when we ask the question, what does the music need, what we're really saying here is we have to listen to music in such a way where we're listening to the whole picture. We're getting the entire musical environment in our ears, not just the one line, right, or the one lick or the one pattern or one piece of vocabulary or whatever it might be. We have to get the whole sonic landscape in front of us. So when you listen to records... Try not to listen to only the trumpet player right, or only the soloist. Listen to everybody because what that's going to do is inform your intuition so that when you get in those kind of situations yourself as a player, you're going to know how to react. You're going to have some things to go to because you've absorbed those different environments and can handle them just from like an intuitive level. So then when you play, shift your focus from being on yourself and your line, your melody, whatever you're improvising, and put your focus rather on what would be best in context, right? What will make the other musicians that you're playing with sound great? What will make the music as a whole sound better, right? There's a huge difference. And the analogy that I like to tell students a lot is to think of it like you're driving, right? When you're driving, you're not overly focused on what's happening in the rear view mirror or in the side mirrors or what's next to you, right? You're focused on the whole environment because you have to be aware of all these things. And that allows you to take in the whole picture and make the best decisions for yourself in a situation where a lot of variables are happening and you can't control what everybody else around you is doing, right? That's like improvising. That's like music. So think of it like that, and I think that can help a lot. But the reality is that you can also play things that aren't, quote, true to yourself for other reasons, right? You could play it because you know that intellectually, harmonically, theoretically, it works over what you're playing, right? Or maybe it's a certain lick or some pattern that you've learned that you tend to you know, revert into or something. So maybe you play that. Or maybe you're thinking in your head like, well, I got to play this because this is what Clifford Brown would do. Or this is what Miles Davis would do. Or this is what Woody Shaw would do. Whoever it might be, right? And this also reveals uh, just kind of some misguided intuitions that we tend to have as improvisers and i think especially coming up in the jazz tradition there's such a uh a necessity for learning the history being informed by the people who have come before you but the reality is, is that sometimes we can get so stuck in sort of the rules if you will that we get out of this mentality of what it really means to improvise, to create, right? The image that I have always given myself is imagining like I'm a painter and in front of me, I have a completely blank white canvas, right? There's nothing else on it. And in that moment, I get to decide how I want to paint on that canvas. I get to decide what I want to play based on whatever I'm hearing and whatever the band is doing or whatever, again, that the music needs in the moment. And that visual could help you, right? Because it strips down everything from being intellectual and based in sort of what's, quote, right and, quote, wrong to now being something where it becomes this instinctual primal thing that you're doing in creating sound, expressing emotion, feeling through music, right? Through our instruments. And at the very least, I would maybe recommend if you struggle with this question, right? Being true to yourself while improvising, that you think about it that way, right? Imagine that blank canvas and imagine what you're doing as being those brushstrokes, And as being you getting to create something in the moment, spontaneously, that expresses what needs to get expressed, right? So, a couple other really practical things, just to finish this off. One thing I would really recommend that a lot of people in this season have talked about is to sing. Sing and play when you practice all the time. And access what you are trying to hear, what's, quote, true to yourself through singing. That's the most natural way you're going to do it. And then when you play, you want to imagine as if you're singing. The trumpet now is your voice, right? That's going to help you bridge the gap between what you hear and what you actually play, right? And the other thing I'll say is this. Your ability to remain true to yourself while you're improvising is going to depend on a couple things, in my opinion. One is it's going to depend on your capacity to to know what's going on around you and not be thrown off by it, right? So if you feel like you're getting in situations where the chordal instruments that you're playing with are throwing things your way harmonically that you can't handle, then you got to get in the shed with harmony, right? you got to figure out what they're doing and have it become instinctual to you. Same thing rhythmically, right? If you're finding that the drummer or the rhythm section are doing certain things rhythmically that's throwing you off, you got to get in the shed with it, right? Your capacity to handle those things are going to dictate how comfortable you're going to be, which will then dictate how concentrated or how in your zone you're able to stay when you're improvising, right? The other thing with this, though, is even when you don't know what's going on, you have to not panic, right? You got to stay in the game. You got to embrace the tension that comes with being in the unknown. Right? And so what I find that a lot of people experience too, is they'll get out of the thing that they want to do when they're improvising, when stuff gets really uncomfortable or when they don't understand what's going on. And, you just got to hang in there, right? Figure out what the music needs next, like we're talking about. Ask what the music needs and just do that and make it up. There's no right or wrong answer, okay? So there was another question that was asked that I thought was sort of tangentially related to this that would be maybe good to check out next. And this was coming from somebody who, who asked, how do you make language you've transcribed personal to you? I think, again, this is a really great question and it's a really common issue that a lot of improvisers struggle with, right? Uh, Here are a couple practical things I would suggest. One is you've got to know where it fits. And what I mean by that is you have to understand and know what's happening harmonically under the thing that you've transcribed, right? If you don't know this, there's no way you're going to be able to take this thing and apply it to the correct situation or context harmonically speaking at least right so you have to know that make sure you figure out the chords to the stuff that you transcribe okay this is essential all right but once you've done this the biggest thing that i think will help you with this is to make variations and alterations on the stuff that you've transcribed okay Change the beginning of it, how you're getting into the line. Or change the ending of it, right? Change how you're coming out of it. Or maybe you want to add something to the middle, right? And extend the line somehow. Or maybe you want to change it rhythmically in some way, right? Another great thing that I would recommend practicing is play the line in many different tempos, right? Play it rubato, free. Play it slow. Play it fast. Play it swung. Play it straight. Figure out kind of how it fits into what you're hearing, right? And by, I think, doing this a lot, you're going to get in the habit of taking everything that you learn from somebody else and figure out a way to say it in your own way, right? That's going to be what helps make that language sound more personal to you. The only other thing I'll say with this is that don't rush this process, okay? Okay. It takes a long time. (laughs) It's not going to happen overnight. It's definitely not going to happen in a week or two weeks, maybe. You've got to really sit with the stuff that you learn and transcribe and imitate from other people and really absorb it into your being, right? Again, I think singing helps in this process a lot. And just repetition, right? The more you do it day after day after day, You're going to get there to the point where it's absorbed in your psyche in such a way that you're not going to have to think about it. And that's when it's going to really become personal. All right. Question number three. We're going to get into some trumpet nerd stuff here. How did you pick your current equipment? I knew the gear stuff would have to come in sometime. We're trumpet players after all, right? So... I think it'd be helpful to give a little background for me um, of what I've played over the years. Um, I've really only played on three different horns for my entire life. Uh, One was a Bach Strad 37 that I played from basically sixth grade until I was 27 or something. Pretty much my whole life. And at that point, I found this really amazing horn. It was a prototype built for Donald Byrd years ago. Uh, by the great horn maker Dick Ackwright out in LA and um, founded at Landers Brass in New York City and kind of fell in love with it. It felt like it was similar to my Bach in many ways, but it had this other thing that allowed me to access something that I was going for at that point. And only in the last year or so have I been playing on a newer, different horn, which was built specifically for me by Fred Powell, who used to work for Con Selmer for a number of years, helped build the Con Vintage One flugelhorn, now is an amazing instrument maker maker here in Indiana. And uh, we basically worked together to custom design the horn to whatever I wanted to feel and hear, which was a really incredible experience, and I'm really happy with how things turned out. Uh, As far as mouthpieces go, uh, I've only really played on like two mouthpieces, right? I probably started out on like a 7C, like most people do. And at some point in high school, I switched to a 3C and still play a 3C to this day. And I have an Adams F1 Flugel that I play with a Bach 3C Flugel mouthpiece as well. And that's kind of it. I'm pretty simple. I'm, I'm pretty opposite from a gear nut. And I guess... I've always been a big believer that the equipment that you play is like 1% of what's going to actually make up the way you play your sound and the way you play comes from your imagination. It comes from what you hear. Right. And it comes through a lot of time in the practice room, of course. Right. But I think the tendency for a lot of trumpet players is to Try to figure out what gear they have to change in order to get them to sound how they want to sound. And that's their first go-to rather than, I got to get my butt in the practice room and I got to shed, right? And so my biggest recommendation would be when stuff isn't coming out how you want it to, don't think about changing your equipment first, okay? Work harder. Imagine what you're trying to play more vividly get to the point where you can sound like yourself on any instrument and mouthpiece, right? And when you get to this point, then you can dig into the 1% and it's actually going to make a difference. And it'll really help you get that much closer to how you sound. Okay. That'd probably be my biggest recommendation. A couple other things I might suggest record yourself. Okay. Record yourself a lot in general, but, especially when you're trying out different mouthpieces or different horns, the gear that's best for you will kind of reveal itself to you by how at ease and how comfortable you are playing it. You're going to be able to hear that in the sound. And that's what I would really listen for. Okay, Uh, I would also really recommend if you've got a, a regular private teacher, to ask for their advice, to have them play the things that you're checking out and see what they think because they've probably done it a lot more than you have and can really help you in that aspect, right? And lastly, I would just ask your friends, you know, A, B test two or three different horns for them if you're trying some different instruments or some different mouthpieces and see what they think. And they'll be able to tell you something on the other end of the bell that you won't be able to hear to the degree that they can. Okay. So I know that like every instrument maker and mouthpiece maker is hating me right now because I'm telling you like not to buy gear, (laughs) but it's all about your imagination. It's all about how you hear the sound and about putting in the time so that you can make the instrument that you're playing sound like you no matter what. Okay. Question four, another trumpety one. Here we go. Give me your take on improving sound production. Okay, I like this one. I've thought about this a lot. Um, I think in order to answer this question, we first have to ask the question of how is a sound produced on the trumpet itself, right? And contrary to popular belief, it's actually not produced by buzzing your lips. That doesn't produce the sound. Nor is it produced by anything really having to do with the embouchure. The embouchure is actually an effect. It's not a cause. And... What I mean by that is what actually produces the sound that we hear out of the trumpet is the air or the kind of air that we put into the instrument. Basically, sound is produced by the air that we put into the instrument when it meets the molecules of air that are already existing in the horn. That's that's called a standing wave, Right. So when this happens, our air energizes the standing wave and that actually produces the sound and that causes our lips to vibrate, right? It's not the other way around. So all this to say that if we want to improve sound production, what we have to think about is the kind of air that we put into the horn, right? And two things I would maybe suggest you think about. One is the air that we put into the instrument has to be full of energy, okay? It has to have that spark. The analogy that I always give to students is imagine like you're standing at home plate about to get pitched a 100-mile-an-hour fastball, right? I don't know about you guys, but if you remember being in like the batting cages when you were younger and getting like a 40-mile-an-hour pitch, that sucker is fast, okay? I can't even imagine what it is to be at home plate and get a 100-mile-an-hour fastball, that has so much energy. That's the kind of energy that your air needs to have when it comes into the instrument, okay? At the same time, this is not a tense kind of energy. It's relaxed. It's loose, right? And the thing that I always think about is the kind of air that I would use to fog up a mirror, okay? If I fog up a mirror, I'm using warm air, As opposed to the kind of air when you're blowing through a straw, right? Which is cold air. So we want to have warm, relaxed, energetic air that comes into the instrument, right? But you don't want to just think about air because then you're thinking about something that's not the sound, right? So you want to imagine a sound that has that energy that is also relaxed and loose and free. And let that imagination of the sound cause you to take the breath that your body needs to produce it. That's it. That's really really going to help improve your sound production. Um, a couple of other things that I find really helpful with this too are we have to put our sound out front meaning you want to imagine your sound past the end of your bell okay you know singers will practice singing with different vowels. Right, They'll practice A-E-I-O-O, right? And a lot of times, I think I encounter trumpet players who play with a, a vowel of like, oh, like that. And if you do that, you'll actually notice that that vowel, where the sound is sitting in your throat or your oral cavity, is pretty far back, right? But if you play with a sound that has a vowel of, ah, like that, That sound automatically comes to the front, and it actually comes even past your mouth. It comes out of your oral cavity, and it projects, right? So what you want to do is play with that kind of ah sort of vowel all the time, right? And on your end of the bell, it might sound a little bright, maybe from what you're used to, but trust me, it's not as bright as you think it is. It's just forward, and that's actually what you want to have in your sound all the time. You can have your sound be dark or bright or wherever you want it on that spectrum. But it always has to be forward. That's going to help your sound production too. Okay. Another thing is you don't necessarily improve sound production by using more air. Okay, Think about that. It's not necessarily the amount of air. It's the kind of air okay that's where a lot of people i think tend to go wrong also my teacher bob baca used to always give this analogy of imagining your sound being like a jaguar going 100 miles an hour instead of like a volkswagen or something going 100 miles an hour right the volkswagen is going to have to work pretty hard right they're probably in our case if we put it into our trumpet context probably trying to use more air to get more sound, right? But the Jaguar, on the other hand, just has a different engine. It's got a different kind of horsepower, and it's going to purr when it goes 100 miles an hour, right? It's not that it's necessarily using more gasoline or more energy of the car. It's just built different, right? So you want to think about your air that way. It's not necessarily the more air you put in, the more sound you're going to get out. It's the kind of ear that you're using again, right? Lastly, I would just recommend as you play to focus on the resonance of sound that you get rather than necessarily how loud or soft you're playing, okay? Volume and sound color are two totally different things. And you want to get a sound that resonates, that lights up the room, as Roy Hargrove said. Right. And what I like to do is imagine when I play that my sound is actually getting wider. Right. That'll make it so that you get more color or overtones happening in your sound, which is going to make it resonate more. Right. So a lot of times producing more sound or improving your sound production is as much about changing how you're making the horn sing, how it's resonating over anything else, okay? So just as you play, listen to your sound in that, and try to get it to resonate more, and I bet you'll improve your sound production that way a lot too. All right, let's do one more question, and then we'll take a little musical break, and I'll play something for you just to cleanse the palate, and we'll go from there, all right? Um, Question five, what sparked your most productive period of musical development and why? That's a great question. Um, This is interesting because my first instinct is to say that I think my most productive time musically were like the first few years I was in New York. You know, I was totally immersing myself in the music, in the scene, uh, going to jam sessions all the time, going to hear people play pretty much every night, constantly listening to music. I remember listening more in the first three or four years I lived in New York than I had in my entire life, probably put together. (laughs) It's just so much time commuting that you, you have to make the most of that time. And so I would just listen to things over and over and over again. And in many ways, I think I had to figure a lot of things out on my own for the first time. I was pretty far away from home. Um, I was in a lot of new environments that I wasn't used to being in. Uh, I was playing more with people than I ever had in my entire life. And I had to dig really deep into trying to play what I heard. And I was confronted because a lot of the times I would honestly go out to sessions or play with people and I would be really frustrated with how I sounded. And that bar that I was coming up against that was so high forced me to raise my game immediately. Like I had to get it together as fast as possible. That sense of urgency was so important, you know, but I guess what's interesting to me about this question is that I was actually probably practicing less during that time than I was maybe just a few years earlier in college. You know, I was probably practicing at least six to eight hours a day getting all my fundamentals happening, doing tons of transcribing, getting tons of language together, really getting the the foundation happening. And I think about that time, and if I hadn't had all of that, I couldn't have gotten to New York and been working on the things that I was working on then, right? And I also think about even just the last few years for me. You know, I've been teaching here at Indiana University since 2017. And honestly, teaching full-time in this capacity has helped crystallize so many things that I'd thought about and worked on for years that I feel like are only finally coming together now. Like certain stuff is feeling much clearer to me and I feel more confident and more me than I ever have, you know. So when I think about each of these three big periods of my life, you know, what was most productive? I don't know. It's hard to say. Um, But I guess when I think about each of these, I think there's a common thread or maybe a couple common threads. And one of those common threads is that, I don't know, for me, I've always just been obsessed with learning. I love the process. Uh, I'm always trying to learn from every situation I'm in, trying to raise my game in every area all the time. That's just part of my nature. Uh, I don't know how to do things any differently than that. And I honestly get really restless when I feel any amount of complacency in myself with anything in my life, musical or non-musical. Uh, so I don't know, maybe it comes down to a couple of things. Maybe it's like, you know, if you want to, be productive, you've got to stay interested. I think, you know, you've got to follow the things that you love and do them with every ounce of yourself. You know, if you do that, you will always be productive in some way, shape or form. And I think the other thing that I see with each of these periods for me is that, you know, I was just always active. I was always doing stuff. I was practicing or I was working on different projects or whatever it might have been. As long as you're doing things and you're active and you're not just a slouch and being lazy, you're going to be productive, right? It might look differently from one point of your life to another, but you'll always be productive. So that's what I'd recommend. Stay interested, follow the things that you love and just keep doing stuff. And, that'll definitely lead to a lot of productivity in terms of your musical development. All right, here's a little something to break up the questions. Uh, This is a song that I recorded earlier this year with the Indiana University Jazz Studies faculty. It's a song of mine called North, and I'll just play a couple clips of it here for sake of time. And if you guys like it, you can check it out on YouTube, or it'll be released on streaming platforms this fall. So hope you guys like it. hope you guys like that. That's called North. And like I said before, you can check that out on YouTube or it'll be on streaming platforms in the fall of 2021. So you can check it out there. Uh, All right, let's keep going. We got five more questions. Here's question number six. How much do you let intuition guide your practicing versus what you quote, need to take care of? Uh, I think for starters, to me, this has to be a balance of both. I mean, it sounds like the obvious answer, but you know, if you only practice based on your intuition or what you feel like playing at that given moment, there's probably a pretty good chance that you're not going to be doing certain things that are ultimately good for you, that you need. You know, You might get some kind of instant gratification out of just kind of following your nose, so to say. But in the long run, I think you're going to suffer, and you're playing... It's going to be lacking in certain areas, you know? I think we all know that, but it's really just having the self-control enough to know that you do need to do the things that are good for you, right? They're going to benefit you. You have to think of the long game and not just the short game, right? So here's how I like to think of it. Uh, I like to structure my practice so that I get to everything I want to each day in some way, shape, or form. And I like to think of practicing in lots of little sets. But it's within each of these sets is to me where we can let our intuition guide us, right? So for example, you got to work on fundamentals, right? If you don't work on fundamentals, you're not going to be able to play your instrument and express the things you want to express. So you got to do long tones. We're going to do some flow studies or scales or whatever it may be. We're going to get to some flexibility, some articulation right? Et cetera, et cetera. So you know that you're going to practice those things, but then as you're doing them, that's where you let your intuition guide you and tell you if you need to slow down, if you need to speed up, if you need to do something over and over and over again, or if you need to keep moving and just get some momentum, right? That's where you let the intuition go. And whatever you feel like you need to get your playing to be the way you want it to be, you do that, right? I oftentimes tell my students that it's much more productive and effective for them to play one flexibility exercise and do it slowly or do it over and over and over again instead of trying to whip through a bunch of exercises, right? Because it's going to be better for your playing when you're, able to get to that concentrated focus state so that you can get into your zone and you can really let the instrument just play itself, right? That's what you want. Or let's say you're working on improvisation. You take a tune, you're working on some specific harmonic concepts or rhythmic concepts or whatever it may be, and you just get yourself in this space where you're working on that one thing and you're able to really sync all of your focus into that one thing. And that's really the space that our intuition thrives in, right? Where it can just live within a certain structure, but within that structure, there's this freedom for it to lead you and guide you. So that might be how I'd recommend thinking about intuition and how it informs your practicing, if that makes sense. All right, question seven. It's a good one. How important is tradition to you and how important is it to your students? You know, I think it really depends on how we define the word tradition. First of all, right? Like what is quote the tradition? Um, Is it a certain group of people? Is it a certain way of playing or is it bigger than that? And, I think a lot of times when we talk about quote the tradition as jazz musicians, you got to know the history, you got to know the tradition. A lot of times, what that means, or or at least what we're subconsciously thinking it is, is like, okay, we gotta love Charlie Parker and Duke Ellington and Thelonious Monk and John Coltrane. We gotta know how to play bebop. We've gotta understand two five ones, etc., etc. We kind of cover the bases, right? And it's not that any of that isn't important, but I think we have to think of the tradition or the lineage, the history of this music that we play as a much bigger thing than just, you know, a couple things to practice or a couple people to know about. It can't really be surface level, it has to be this understanding that all of this music has deep social connections and massive cultural implications and ties and frankly it's a way of life right it's way more than just some stuff you learn in a practice room or whatever so i think you know probably how i'd answer this is that for most of the students that i get to work with on a regular basis the tradition is important to them on some level uh I think a lot of times when we're younger, we probably don't have as much of a sense of depth in how we understand the tradition. And so, consequently, we can't enjoy it and love it as richly and deeply as we do if we have a more thorough understanding of it, right? I know I was in that place as a younger student. I thought I, you know, respected the tradition of this music. But until I grew up and matured and got out into the world and did a lot of different things, I didn't have as much of a comprehensive understanding of what that really meant. And I think that's normal. That's natural, right? So for me now as a teacher, I see how vital it is to be connected to something that has strong, firm foundations, right? This music that we play, it's not just do whatever you feel. And we know that, right? It's complex. It's sophisticated. It's deep, not only in like an intellectual, theoretical sense, but in, a, in an emotional sense, right? In a feeling sense. There's such deep foundations in this music that the beautiful thing is if we can start from a place of respecting it and know that it's important, hopefully over time, we'll continue to sink our teeth into how deep this music really goes. And we'll continue to have a greater amount of respect and honor for the people that came before us and what they contributed, you know, and be able to not necessarily think we have to copy certain things that came before us, but, uh, use those people and use those ideas as a jumping off point to then create and put our stamp on the music, right? To still be connected to it as part of one big lineage, but to do our thing and have a voice in it. And that's the only way this music grows and moves forward, I think. And and I think it's the only way it's moved forward over all these years now is you have people that have taken what they've learned and taken what's come before them, and done something else with it, and all of a sudden, it evolves, right? So, I don't know if I really answered that question. That's a tricky one, Uh, but I think it's a really important one to discuss, especially now with the state of how things are in academia, in jazz, and what we need to do as people who love this music and play this music to keep it going in the right way. All right, question eight. Here's one that I definitely do not feel qualified to answer. Uh, What were the greatest challenges you had in combining the Bill Adam and Carmine Caruso methods? Here's why I don't feel qualified to answer that. Um, I probably wouldn't consider myself an expert in either, although I've spent a lot of time and I really kind of came up learning how to play the instrument from people that studied with Mr. Adam. And uh, I would say that generally the ways that I subscribe to trumpet playing probably fall in that camp, but I never really got to study with Mr. Adam. I had two lessons with him when I was 18 or 19 years old. I don't remember anything from them. And I've learned everything that I know about that stuff secondhand and from my own application of it with regards to the Carmine Caruso method, I really don't have much experience doing that stuff at all. And so I definitely want to put that out there. Uh, You know, I think if you look at all the conversations from this past season, a good amount of them brought up Carmine, right? I think of the episode with Ingrid Jensen. I think of the conversation I had with John McNeil for sure. Uh, Dave Douglas, and a few others, I think. So they would be much better resources, and those conversations would be much better resources than me on this. So all that being said, uh, I'll maybe answer this question with a story. And that story is this. When I first moved to New York, I started grad school at SUNY Purchase. And my first semester, I got to study with John Faddis. And Well, I didn't know John at all, I obviously knew of his playing, I had a huge amount of respect for him, and like I've tried to be with every teacher I've studied with, I tried to go in with a totally open mind and do whatever he told me, no matter what, and I remember in one of our first lessons, he taught me the Carmine Caruso six-note exercise, which is one of the preliminary studies from my understanding, that Carmine would do with students. Um, You can find it in the Flexus book that John McNeil co-wrote with Laurie Frink. And uh, I remember John saying to me something along the lines of, keep everything in time, play it really soft, and don't think about how it sounds, just do the exercise. And I remember leaving the lesson thinking like, man, I don't understand this. My whole worldview at that point was to not think about how it feels and only think about the sound, right? Only imagine the sound. And like I was saying, you know, I did everything that he told me. And so I went home for weeks and I was doing the Carmine six-note exercise and didn't really know how to approach it. I was like trying to approach it sort of from this sound first thought but just to do the exercise over and over again, right? And a couple weeks went by and I remember starting to notice in my playing a different sort of awareness of what was going on physically. And this was a very new thing for me because like I said, I had previously come from this camp where at least how I interpreted it was that I shouldn't think about the physical stuff at all. And... Here I was becoming much more aware of what was going on physically, and I was noticing how it was starting to make me a stronger player. I felt like I had uh, this sensation where I felt more in control of my own sound. And, you know, this is a slippery slope. I mean, I would be the first to tell you that I think it's really important for us as trumpet players to not be too concerned with how it feels before we think about how it sounds. But it isn't to say that we shouldn't be aware of what's happening, right? And I would even go so far as to say that if we're not aware of it, we're actually ignoring a really important part of our connection to the instrument, you know? We have to be so in tune with what things feel like and sound like that we can notice even the most minute changes, That's not a bad thing, but while we want to be hyper aware of all these things, we don't want to get in the way and try to overthink and try to control it, right? This makes me think of the book, The Inner Game of Tennis, which if you don't know that book, to me, that's like one of the most seminal books for the life of the mind, you know, and Timothy Galway says in that book how we should become aware of what it feels like to hit the ball, but not try to control it, right? To let the motion just happen. And that was the sensation that I started to have as I was playing is I started to become aware of what was happening while still being able to not get in my own way and not try to control it or overthink about it and try to get myself to have the same feeling every day. But it was this thing where it helped me develop a more, I think, holistic way of playing that to me I think has really benefited me over the years. So in general, long story short, I would say that maybe my biggest challenge initially was what seemed like a dichotomy to me of the Bill Adam method saying that you have to only focus on the sound and... Carmine Caruso method saying don't think about the sound and just do the exercises and figuring out a way to have them marry uh, was initially really challenging for me but I will also say that the more that I've gotten to know about Carmine's methods over the years and the deeper that I go into the Bill Adam thing too the more I realize how similar both of them were not only in how they taught and what concepts they were trying to impart to their students, but in what their ultimate goals were for trumpet playing. And I think if you really do your homework, you'll see just how many similarities there are between the two. In fact, I'd probably say there are more similarities than there are differences in my opinion. So that would just be my plug. Uh, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what method you use. You just got to be able to make it sound how you want it to sound. Have things be as effortless as possible and have it be the most fun to play. I think that's what it's really about, you know. But it goes without saying that, you know, master teachers like Bill Adam and Carmine Caruso can certainly help us, right? All right. Last couple questions. These are a couple of good ones too. Uh, Question nine, how do you find a balance between work and life slash rest during the grind? Um, Well, I'll say at the outset that I'm certainly not great at this, but I think I'm better at it now than I probably ever have been. And that's only because I've had lots of times where I didn't really have a great balance between the two and i've honestly kind of had to learn the hard way in more ways than i'd like to admit it uh, especially with how my lack of balance between those two affects the people around me as much as it does myself Um, i tend to be a workaholic and this often has resulted over the years in me thinking that i'm being productive by working harder working more when in fact, I'm really just kind of working myself to the bone, and my work is actually not being as fruitful or productive. It's it's actually counterproductive. Uh, I don't know. Maybe you can relate to this. I, I feel like our culture often says that we have to be working harder. We got to be on the grind all the time. We got to be working longer. We got to do more. We got to try to become more successful, et cetera, and... That's where our happiness is found. And I don't really think that's true. And I think we see plenty of evidence of that not being true, but how we feel when we work this way. Uh, You know, like, are we ever really satisfied when we're working to that extent? No, not really. Uh, Are we more creative or inspired? Uh, Maybe sometimes, but... When we're really, really busy, not usually, I don't think. And the thing that gets for me is like, are we more thoughtful of other people around us and their needs? And I think the answer to that, at least for me, is no. You know, uh, I know when I'm in my workaholic mode, I tend to not be as observant to the people around me and what they need and just where they're at because I'm too into my own world, you know? So I guess on a general level, one of the biggest things that's helped me with my own work-life balance over the years has been seeing how much more effectively I work when I give time and energy to the the life stuff, you know? Uh, I tend to actually enjoy my work more and I feel like I'm just as productive, if not more productive, than if I spent more time working and less time doing other things. So really how that looks for me is like, if I'm making time to read regularly and work out regularly, and I'm making time to just rest and chill and maybe like watch Netflix, which honestly for me for a long time, like I didn't really watch TV. Like I actually, I I grew up like a closet sports fanatic. And I basically like was not into sports for years and years because I was so into the trumpet, you know? And, uh, over the years I've realized like, actually I really enjoy these things and it's not bad for me to enjoy them. Um, obviously I want to do so in moderation, not just like only sit on the couch and watch the NBA finals all day. Uh, I want to, you know, have this stuff be in balance with everything else. So, I guess when I give time and energy to those kinds of things is when I find that my work is better and I'm generally just a more balanced person. I feel that balance physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually even. And um, you know, I still tend to err on the side of overworking myself and I really need to watch myself especially during the busy busy times but you know i feel like i'm handling those times much better than i ever have and consequently i think i'm able to stay in this sweet spot of that balance a lot more so on a practical level here are three things i guess that really help me balance work and life stuff um the first is i like to plan out in advance when i'm going to do those things um, uh, I'm kind of type a super organized, really into my ICal, Cal. <laughs> and, uh, if I can see over the course of a week or a couple weeks, like when I'm going to be having time to not be working, it's actually really helpful for me so that I can step away from it and kind of get in that zone when I need to be there. Right. Um, uh, another thing is I feel like I over time have have done certain things in shorter spurts so that I break up my times of being like hyper-concentrated and focused. So for example, uh, like writing emails for me is something that I'll do in shorter spurts. Um, any kind of things that don't require like a huge amount of emotional investment, uh, I'll kind of do in the cracks, so to say, because then it allows me to sort of take a breath Um, kind of reassess and process things a little better uh, when I'm doing that, which ends up making whatever I'm doing a little more enjoyable and like not as taxing to me. Um, Lastly, I would say that I think the thing that's honestly helped me the most with this is to really think about, you know, what it means to be in the moment with, with, Everything that I do, not just playing music or you know playing the trumpet or something, but like really be present and be in the moment in life with the people that I'm around, in every situation that I'm in, you know so I guess for this one way it looks for me is to like really focus on my work when I'm working, but when I'm not, to kind of leave it and focus on whatever I'm doing and to be engaged in that fully right? To be present. Uh, I think the balance between work and life can be as much a mental thing as it is a logistical thing. And I think being able to grow in that over the years so that, you know, I can really engage with the people around me and in the situations around me when I'm not working has helped me to rest more. And I really feel that balance more altogether. All right, last question, question 10. As a teacher, how do you help students who are struggling to stay motivated? It's a really good question, again, and uh, it's one that I've thought about a lot since I started teaching at IU a few years ago. Uh, It's a really common thing, especially when you're studying, to go through big ups and downs in terms of feeling inspired, feeling motivated, etc. Although I will say that I think this even applies to every professional musician ever. You know, it applies to the people who we'd call our heroes, probably applies to every single person that's been on this season, right? We all struggle with motivation. the The playing field is totally equal here. But in order to address this, you know, I think what we have to do first again, I love definitions. (laughs) We got to define what motivation is. Right. And to me, uh, I guess it's as simple as like the reasons or desires you have to do anything. Right. And so one thing I find often is that I think students forget why they play music. Right. And so, I'll oftentimes have students write down why they play. Why do you want to do this? You know, like really list it out. Think about it. Um, It's something that we, you know, as musicians, when we're coming up, we maybe go into school because it seems like the right thing to do. But maybe we haven't even thought about, like, why we want to do this. And, you know, I think there's just a reality that, You start to realize like, man, if I want to be a musician and I want this to be my career, what I do as my livelihood, this is not for the faint of heart. I mean, this is not easy. Like I have to really, really want this like more than anything else, you know? So when I have students write out why they want to play or figure out if they want to play and they'd go through that exercise. Um, you know, a lot of times that process kind of just shows themselves like, okay, I really do want to do this. And even that can be inspiring and motivating, right? What I'll also do is, is just ask students, you know, in a lesson or even just casually in passing, like, how's the time in the shed been? Like, are you getting in the time? Because, you know, the reality is that you have to put yourself in position to be motivated too. It's not just going to come and appear out of thin air. You know, if you get your butt in the practice room and get the horn on your face, man, I bet you, you'll start to feel motivated if you really want to do this. I know for me, that's sometimes all it takes. Like, even if I'm feeling super unmotivated, if I can just get the horn on my face, all of a sudden I start to want to, Perfect this one thing that I'm working on, or go deeper into this other thing that I'm working on. And, you know, at that point, it's just like off to the races. Like I could go for hours and hours, and all of a sudden, the motivation is there only because I just made the first step of getting in the practice room. Right. Uh, I'll also ask students, like, okay, what are your goals? What do you want to do? You know, that's another huge source of motivation. Like if you have certain long-term and short-term goals for that matter, written out, like that's going to prompt you to be doing stuff now. And at least for me, that gets me super motivated. So I think first things first, you know, students remember why you play music, right? Why, why do you do this thing? And if you really love it, and you can write down some of those things and put them into words, define them, that can really help you. That can be oftentimes the first step. But I think a lot of times what I encounter with students is that they're only motivated to achieve like an external goal or an incentive, right? And I honestly just believe that incentives aren't enough, uh, extrinsic motivation isn't enough. It has to be intrinsic motivation that gets us to do what we really want to do. And to me, I think there are like three ways to break this down um, or three kinds of intrinsic motivation rather. You know, one is like just simply the urge to do your thing. Like this sense of autonomy or, or being able to direct your own life. Uh, Another one would be like something like mastery of something, right? Like just the desire to get better at something that matters to you. That's an intrinsic motivation. And another thing I think of is, it's just like purpose, you know, like the desire to do what we do in service to something larger than ourselves, right? I think... Any one of these intrinsic motivations has to drive you. And really what I'm saying here with all this is intrinsic motivations help you love the process, right? And I think as a musician, we have to love the process more than anything, right? We can't be in this for a job or a gig or a placement in one of our school bands or an award or some kind of recognition or whatever it may be, we have to be in it to be in it, right? We we got to love to practice just because we love to play our instrument or to get better or that it just makes us feel good, right? Maybe it's like an escape for us, right? And so I think talking with students to help them figure out these Intrinsic motivations within themselves to me is really huge, and I've seen it have really great effect in certain students even recently um, and I think that's ultimately what it's all about that's what's gonna keep us motivated right but lastly, I'll say this, and um, if I remember right, I think Ingrid Jensen in the conversation I got to have with her in episode three talked about this, and I thought it was so simple yet super profound, uh, is that motivation? I don't think it's something we just do on our own. Um, we can do it with each other. And in that way, I think we can, you know, develop a community around us to encourage us to be motivated, to follow our motivations. Uh, you know we need each other i mean that's what it really comes down to and so you know for students i think it's just so important for them to be with each other right it's been hard for all of us in this last year because we're in this position where we're stuck in isolation a lot of the times and so we feel that lack of support we we don't get to be pushed by each other or learn from each other and Consequently, I think we're probably all a little bit less inspired because we're not together. And so the reality is that I think if we want to stay motivated, we got to do it together. It's not just something you want to do on your own and try to do it on your own strength. Use each other. You know, oftentimes, too, I'll suggest to students to you know, like share their goals that they have with another student or a group of students. Like if you guys are all working together to achieve separate goals, but you're doing it together and holding each other accountable, man, that's where it's at. Like that's going to help you stay motivated, especially if you see that the other person is tickets a major, but you know, getting closer to accomplishing those goals, you want to do the same thing, right? So all that to say. Remind yourself why you play music and go on those intrinsic motivations, go as deep as you can into them and do them with each other, right? Cultivate a community of people around you where you're all going after your goals and the things that really motivate you, the things that get you going. And I think if you do that, that's going to go a long way. All right, that's a wrap. Season one is in the books. It's been incredible talking shop with all these amazing trumpet players this season. Thank you guys again for checking it out. I really appreciate it, and I hope you've dug it. I've had a great time, and uh, yeah, I'm going to go for season two. I'm into this. So the plan is I'm going to take a little bit of time off, kind of retool some things, get a whole new list of guests ready for another season start doing some interviews, and hopefully be able to kick off Season 2 in the next few months. So, with that, happy practicing. Hope you guys can stay inspired over the next few months. And we'll see you soon for Season 2.